Welcome to the May 14th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we'll learn why anticoagulation may play a role in the prevention of vaso-occlusive events in sickle cell disease. Review data that could help predict the risk of VTE and bleeding in hospitalized patients. And find out if ruxolitinib is a viable treatment of steroid refractory acute graft-versus-host disease. First up, we'll examine data presented in the blood article entitled, Thrombin-Mediated Activation of PAR1 Contributes to Microvascular Stasis in Mouse Models of Sickle Cell Disease by Erica Sparkenbaugh and a team led by Rafal Polinski from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and John Belcher from the University of Minnesota. Sickle cell disease results in an altered erythrocyte physiology associated with complications that include hemolytic anemia, vaso-occlusion, chronic inflammation, and activation of coagulation. A serious concern for patients with sickle cell disease is vaso-occlusive crisis, or VOC. VOC is a painful clinical manifestation that often requires hospitalization and is the primary cause of morbidity for sickle cell patients. Three approved therapies for sickle cell disease are hydroxyurea, L-glutamine, and crizanlizumab, which help reduce sickling, oxidative stress, and abnormal expression of adhesion molecules. However, while these agents can limit the duration, severity, and frequency of crises, they do not prevent VOC, indicating that other processes must be involved. Recent studies in animal models have shown that coagulation contributes to the chronic inflammation and end-organ damage associated with sickle cell disease. In this thought-provoking investigation, the authors show that the coagulation system directly contributes to the microvascular stasis that causes VOC. They postulated that tissue factor-mediated activation of coagulation might promote vaso-occlusion in sickle cell disease via thrombin-dependent PAR1 activation on endothelial cells and induction of microvascular stasis. PAR1, or protease-activated receptor 1, is a G-protein-coupled receptor involved in regulation of the thrombotic response. The investigators used intravital microscopy in sickle cell disease mice to study two different models of vaso-occlusion, heme-induced stasis in skin microvasculature and LPS-induced pulmonary vaso-occlusion mediated by arteriolar neutrophil platelet microemboli. Inhibition of tissue factor and the downstream coagulation proteases Factor 10A and thrombin significantly reduced heme-induced microvascular stasis in the mouse models of VOC. Pharmacologic inhibition of PAR1, as well as genetic deficiency of PAR1, in all non-hematopoietic cells also made sickle cell mice resistant to microvascular stasis. In these mice, the investigators noticed that endothelial von Willebrand factor and P-selectin expression were both decreased in lung tissue in addition to decreased arteriolar neutrophil platelet microemboli. In summary, the key points of this investigation are as follows. In sickle cell disease mice, inhibition of tissue factor-initiated coagulation activation reduces microvascular stasis 
and neutrophil platelet aggregates in lung, and endothelial PAR1 signaling contributes to the heme-induced microvascular stasis. Overall, these results provide a strong rationale for the concept that prophylactic anticoagulation might lessen the incidence of VOC. In an accompanying commentary, Victor Gorduk from the University of Illinois at Chicago notes that Sparkenbaugh and colleagues have carved a new path forward in the management of sickle cell disease. The possibility that oral anticoagulants already currently being used in the clinic for other indications could prevent VOC in sickle cell patients, if validated, could be life-changing. Next up, we'll discuss evidence from the blood article entitled Prognostic Factors for VTE and Bleeding in Hospitalized Medical Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Andrea Dartsey and colleagues, led by Holger Schunemann from McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Up to 10% of hospital deaths are caused by venous thromboembolism, or VTE. A patient's risk for both VTE and for bleeding may depend on the severity of their medical illness. Roughly 50 to 70% of symptomatic VTE and 70 to 80% of fatal pulmonary embolism occur in acute medically ill patients. The mainstay of VTE prevention is pharmacologic prophylaxis with either low molecular weight or unfractionated heparin. However, these agents are also associated with increased risk of bleeding. Thus, a long-standing dilemma is to identify those patients most likely to experience benefit and least likely to experience harm from these interventions. There are many risk assessment models used to guide clinicians in selecting those patients at highest risk for venous thromboembolism, as well as those at risk for clinically significant bleeding complications. However, systematic reviews and assessments of the certainty of the evidence are lacking. This need was the focus of this study, which used a systematic approach to more rigorously identify prognostic factors for VTE and for bleeding, some of which are not considered in current risk assessment models. In an effort to more solidly identify prognostic factors for VTE and bleeding in hospitalized patients, the authors conducted a comprehensive and systematic review, searching Medline and Embase from inception to May 2018 for studies on these topics. Reviewers extracted data in duplicate and independently. The team also assessed the certainty of the evidence using the GRADE approach, which stands for Grading of Recommendations Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. They honed in on 14 studies that identified 29 candidate prognostic factors in VTE and three studies on bleeding that investigated 17 candidate factors. The result of their new analysis identified 23 prognostic factors for VTE and 15 for bleeding. For VTE, moderate certainty evidence shows a probable association with older age, elevated C-reactive protein, D-dimer, fibrinogen levels, heart rate, thrombocytosis, leukocytosis, fever, leg edema, a lower score in the Barthol Index of Daily Living Activities, immobility, paresis, previous history of VTE, thrombophilia, malignancy, critical illness, and infections. For bleeding, moderate certainty evidence shows a probable association with older age, sex, anemia, obesity, low hemoglobin, gastroduodenal ulcers, rehospitalization, 
critical illness, thrombocytopenia, blood dyscrasias, hepatic disease, renal failure, antithrombotic medication, and central venous catheter use. Age, critical illness, central venous catheter use, and autoimmune disease were prognostic for both outcomes. Obesity and morbid obesity were associated with VTE and bleeding, respectively. Notably, the authors found that some factors they identified as having a probable association with VTE are currently not included or considered in the development of most VTE risk assessment models. These factors are elevated C-reactive protein, a lower Barthel index, history of malignancy, and an elevated heart rate. While these data are not yet ready for clinical use, an accompanying commentary by Bethany Samuelson-Bano from Oregon Health and Science University notes that the results of this study provide key data for future development of optimized risk assessment models. The logical next steps are the careful development and validation of such models that more accurately predict risk in medical patients of both VTE and of bleeding with and without anticoagulant prophylaxis. Now for a review of the report published in Blood, entitled Ruxolitinib for the Treatment of Steroid Refractory Acute GVHD, REACH-1, a multi-center, open-label, phase two trial by Madden Jagasia from Vanderbilt University Medical Center in the United States and colleagues. Allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT, is a potentially curative treatment option for a variety of hematologic malignancies and several non-malignant hematologic diseases. Steroid refractory acute graft-versus-host disease, or acute GVHD, is a life-threatening condition that develops in 50 to 70% of patients following HCT with conventional treatment and is one of the major barriers to successful transplant outcomes. This paper reports that efficacy and safety results after six months of follow-up in the REACH-1 trial, the first prospective clinical trial evaluating ruxolitinib, a JAK-1-2 inhibitor, for the treatment of patients with steroid refractory acute GVHD. The results showed that ruxolitinib induced responses in more than half of these patients and was well-tolerated. The development of acute GVHD is complex and is initiated when alloreactive donor immune cells recognize immunologically contrasting antigens in the host. T-cell receptor activation of donor T-cells plays a critical role in acute GVHD, and the subsequent immune responses against the host results in tissue damage, primarily in the skin, liver, and gut. Systemic corticosteroids are the recommended first-line treatment for grades 2 through 4 acute GVHD but less than 50% of patients achieve durable responses. The reported six-month survival estimate for patients with steroid refractory acute GVHD is approximately 50%, with less than or equal to 30% of patients surviving beyond two years. Janus kinases, or JAKs, are intracellular tyrosine kinases that play a critical role in the development and function of immune cells and have been implicated in the pathogenesis of acute GVHD. Ruxolitinib is an oral, selective JAK1-2 inhibitor and recently became the first drug approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of steroid refractory acute GVHD in adults and pediatric patients 12 years and older. Retrospective clinical studies of ruxolitinib 
as salvage therapy in this setting suggest clinical benefit, including encouraging overall survival rates. Taking the next step, Jagasia et al. conducted the REACH-1 study. This was an open-label phase 2 study with patients 12 years and older, with grades 2 through 4 steroid refractory acute GVHD. Patients were eligible to receive ruxolitinib orally, starting at 5 mg twice daily, plus corticosteroids, until treatment failure, unacceptable toxicity, or death. The primary endpoint was overall response rate at day 28. The key secondary endpoint was duration of response at 6 months. As of July 2, 2018, 71 patients received greater than or equal to one dose of ruxolitinib. Of these, 48 patients, equal to 67.6%, had grade 3 or 4 acute GVHD at enrollment. At day 28, 39 patients, or 55%, had an overall response, including 19 or 27%, with complete responses. The best overall response rate at any time after the initiation of the drug was 73%, with a complete response seen in 56% of patients. Responses were seen irrespective of the site affected and acute GVHD, including the skin, the gastrointestinal tract, and liver. Overall survival rates for all patients at 6 months and 12 months were 51% and 43.6% respectively. The most common adverse events that emerged during treatment, which occurred in 50-60% to 60 of patients, were anemia, thrombocytopenia, hypokalemia, neutropenia, and peripheral edema. 53 patients, or 75%, had at least one adverse event deemed related to ruxolitinib, with the most common being cytopenias. The authors concluded that ruxolitinib produced durable responses and encouraging survival compared with historical data in patients with steroid refractory acute GVHD, who otherwise have dismal outcomes. Overall, ruxolitinib was well-tolerated and with a safety profile consistent with expectations for this patient population. The treatment of steroid-resistant acute GVHD has remained even in 2020, an unmet clinical need, as noted in an accompanying commentary by Antonio Maria Rizzitano from Federico II University of Naples in Italy and Regis Pafault de la Tour at the University de Paris in France. Now, the study by Jagasia and colleagues convincingly demonstrates that ruxolitinib can be an effective agent for steroid refractory acute GVHD and may rescue about half of affected patients. However, results from the ongoing REACH-2 study, which is a phase 3 randomized trial, will be necessary to validate these outcomes. More investigation is also required to better understand the biologic mechanisms underlying the lack of response in a substantial portion of patients. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.